This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Federal prosecutors in Colorado have stepped up efforts to go after cyber criminals. This week, the U.S. Attorney's Office here announced a new cybercrime and national security division. One priority will be criminals who exploit home and office computers. Another, the growth of child exploitation online. Judy Smith is the head of the new effort. Judy, welcome to the show. Hi, and thanks for having me. How prevalent is child exploitation in Colorado? Well, uh, I hope less so, given the efforts that our office uh, has done in conjunction with our state and local partners. Um, We want Colorado to be an unwelcome place for child pornographers. But the unfortunate reality is it's a huge amount. Um, The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is a cache for all the images, and they have millions, uh, about 178 million images. So we get cases like that constantly. And of course, there's always a resource issue. But uh, through the efforts of our office and our Project Safe Childhood coordinator, Alicia Reverts, um, our child pornography production cases have gone up upwards of 500 percent over the last couple of years. Uh, so um, the FBI, uh, the Innocent Images Program and their Violent Crime Against Children program really know what they're doing. And uh, HSI also, Homeland Security Investigations, as well as the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. And you're working in conjunction with them. Um Who are the actors behind this? Is there a profile? They are the the profile that we see. There isn't one. Um, Mm -hmm. All walks of life, all socioeconomic categories, uh, all kinds of positions of trust we see. Um, Moms, dads, um, it really runs the gamut. And your efforts involved cases in Colorado, is that right? For the most part, yes. Uh, We have... Uh, individuals who are either downloading, trading child pornography in Colorado, or they are traveling into Colorado uh, to engage in illegal sexual activity with children, or uh, they are producing child pornography that they are then distributing worldwide. And um, you've been working on this for a while. um, And I wonder what you've been able to do so far to address the problem. So good question. Um, We, the Department of Justice, put out the Project Safe Childhood Initiative um, in 2006. And so our office stood that up. Uh, I took over in 2007, 2008. uh, which point I was the we only had one US uh, AUSA working on those cases. So with the development of the special prosecution section and now the cyber unit, we've really focused on that. So we have six AUSAs, all of whom have done child exploitation cases. So that in that way, we've been able to increase our caseload uh, and have forty percent more cases than we used to. Let's talk about the hackers trying to get into people's home computers as well as those who steal information from businesses. What are the latest challenges you face prosecuting these kinds of criminals? So we've been ahead of the trend, I have to say, in cyber in Colorado. Uh, We've particularly, um, we have a new AUSA spot that we got one of the few in the country. And we also created one of only six or seven digital crimes coordinators, and that's Michelle Corver. She's been doing this work along with HSI uh, in their cyber division for the last three years. So um, they, the challenges you see there with digital currency are that it's anonymized. Um, but with Michelle and her team, they've been able to overcome those challenges in using unique investigative techniques. Uh, and they've become really the forefront of not just the country, but the world. We have We work in conjunction with... Uh, 
Brussels, for example, we just had a big takedown, uh, four individuals indicted uh, locally and nine internationally, as well as several uh, state cases. And you're talking about digital um, currency in particular. Explain what the challenges are there. So digital currency takes all forms. The one people most hear about is Bitcoin, but it essentially is a uh, currency that has no um, state actor backing it. It is um, anonymized, which means that like cash or even more anonymous than cash, it can be traded online with and you don't know who you're trading it to. You don't know where it's going uh, necessarily and you don't know who's behind the transaction. So it's used to fuel a lot of the illicit marketplaces online on the dark net. And the dark net is um, a place where you can't just Google. You need specialized software to get there. And not only is the user hidden from the end place where they're visiting, but the end place is hidden. So the illicit marketplace is also hidden uh, and difficult to find. So those are the challenges that we're working on and having good luck in overcoming. And I understand that uh, because of the availability of online, um, you know, instructions, it's easier for would-be hackers to learn how to do this, to hack into home computers and businesses. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, uh, there are tools that can be downloaded uh, on there are entire dark web, dark web um, marketplaces, unfortunately, and uh, they are really up to date and will post all kinds of information, including indictments and instructions um, to further their tradecraft. So we really have to be ahead of it. And we are, I think. We should say that this new division is really an effort to hone in on cybersecurity, but you've always prosecuted these kinds of cases. Your office recently found an interesting solution to a case involving photo bucket. What happened in that case? So that case was prosecuted by David Tanini, who is our uh, computer hacking and intellectual property specialist. So he came from private industry and has a long background. He's also done, he just won the uh, U.S. Attorney's Award for Excellence in his prosecution of a child pornography production case, and then has done several uh, intrusion and hacking Corporate, corporate espionage cases, et cetera. And one of these, of course, was, was Photobucket. Uh, and David worked really well with Photobucket, and they were, they were amazing. The, they were aware of an infiltration into their systems, uh, but they couldn't, using their own techniques, figure out where it was going because they don't have the ability to investigate the way we do. So they contacted us because of our good re working relationship with them. They'd given us a, several child exploitation leads in the past. So they knew who to call and they called the FBI uh, in the cyber division. And uh, they together figured out, well, FBI figured out where the information was going and ultimately tied it back to a Colorado Springs person, uh, Mr. Beret, who was charged ultimately in the indictment, and Mr. Andrianakis, who was also charged in the indictment. Uh, Mr. Andrianakis got into the game kind of late, but the scheme was to bypass the security protections on people's online photo albums. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Bray in particular was interested in pulling off uh, really private photos, so sexually explicit ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and then many of his customers would then use those to exploit their victims or commit cyberstalking crimes. Uh, so really impacted a lot of people. There was there was over a million, upwards of two million um, accounts, and Photobucket was on it. And so uh, they were they kept trying to plug their exploits, but couldn't couldn't figure out. Um, and they could, they just kept changing their tradecraft. 
So uh, ultimately, we were able to figure out where it was, talk to Mr. Beret, figure out who Mr. Andrianakis was. He was the kind of the brains behind the operation. Um, but what was interesting about him is because he was less culpable and because he was so skilled. So he was getting his master's degree in electronic engineering in the United States, and he already had a degree out of Greece. Um, that Photobucket wanted to take advantage of his high skill level because he was the one that had found holes in their systems. So they used him to plug the holes, but also to create a tool that scrubbed their systems that uh, they have over a billion images, two million images uploaded a day, uh, and he can scrub them all for child pornography daily. Before, they had to have four staff members do this, and they could only get through about 100,000. So, so he, really in effect, worked for them in order to sort of, as punishment, to right. pay off his, his yeah. debts. 18 months of free labor that Photobucket has gotten, and they were raving about uh, the work that he did. So um, it's a unique solution to a problem um, that uh, David Tanini was able to broker, and, and it worked out really well for all involved. And is it something you can envision seeing as a solution again? Absolutely. Uh, it's it's something that private industry has started to embrace. In other words, um, paying hackers to find vulnerabilities. And one of our efforts is to outreach to private industry and to get them to report to us. So uh, in those kind of partnerships, we're always working to stay ahead of the trends and, and keep keep our citizens safe. Judy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Judy Smith is the chief of the new Cybercrime and National Security Section is at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Colorado. Coming up, the American bison, a cultural icon and a nuisance to some. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a tug of war happening in the western United States, and the American buffalo is at the center. Some people want to boost the number of buffalo, while others say not so fast. That tension is the jumping-off point for a new podcast, which debuts this week. It's called Threshold, and it looks at the bison's tangled western past and its uncertain future. Radio journalist Amy Martin is the podcast creator. And Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To begin, does the term bison um, and and buffalo, do they res- does it refer to the same animal? It does. There's a lot of confusion about this, but um, bison is the more scientifically correct term, but a lot of people have called them buffalo for years, and so on the podcast, we just use them interchangeably. Your new podcast, uh, Threshold, takes the story, uh, a story about the natural world and takes a deep deep dive uh, to look at all sides of the issue. In the first season, as we said, you look at American bison. What is it about this animal that made you want to focus an entire season on it? Yeah, great question. I mean, it is it is kind of, uh, how can you spend that much time talking about one animal? But as it turns out, um, it's really impossible to tell the story of the American bison without telling the whole story of America. And I think some of the stories that are really important that tend to get pushed to the side, some of the tensions between um, urban and rural communities, um, and the whole history of the genocide of Native Americans is wrapped up in the story of the New York extermination of the bison. And then there's this conservation legacy, which is very um, 
uh, heroic in many ter- in many people's eyes, but also has some um, lots of un- unanswered questions. Um, it's an animal that we've kind of preserved and then forgotten about. It hasn't truly been restored to the landscape the way we have with bears and mountain lions and elk and a bunch of other animals. So we have we have decisions to make about bison. Before European settlers, there were more than 50 million bison across the U.S., including Colorado. But that number dwindled to just about 23 in 1901. Those remaining animals lived protected inside Yellowstone National Park. And that's where you start your first podcast. Clearly, uh, these bison did not get the memo that a radio reporter was coming to interview them this morning. They're being unbelievably picturesque and unbelievably quiet. (laughs) Why did you set your first podcast at Yellowstone? Well, Yellowstone is the place where we saved bison from extinction. Um, That was where, when we got down to that last group of 23 wild bison, that they were saved inside the park. And the the herd has slowly rebounded over the 20th century, and now they're kind of outgrowing their boundaries there. And that's creating tension because, you know, they're migratory animals. They want to leave the park, and then that leaves us with a question of, well, where are they going to go? There's, uh, you know, tension in the state of Montana about them coming onto state lands, partly just because they're a huge animal and they eat a lot of grass, and also because a a portion of the herd carries a disease called brucellosis, which they originally got from cattle and Mm -hmm. then can be passed back to cattle. So we dive into that complex controversy, not only in this first episode, but throughout the series. Ranchers, uh, there are many ranchers who aren't too keen on bison restoration and especially the idea of free roam. One rancher you interview is Druska Kinky. How did you meet her? Um, I met Dreska just uh, through, I just called her up. I knew she was somebody that had cared about this, and she was very um, warm and open with me. I spent several afternoons with her and um, just really wanted to get inside the mind of what it's like for somebody who, who doesn't think restoring bison is a great thing. Let's hear what she has to say. You know, you have all these people out there fighting for free-roaming bison, and it's a, it's a concept, it's a vision that they have of the— Old West and bison just roaming and being happy. And we're fighting for our ability to survive here and make a living as we have for the last 60, almost 70 years. And they don't have anything to lose in their vision. And we have everything to lose in ours. Amy, is that statement similar to those you found when you were traveling the West for the story? You know, there is a huge variety of opinions out there, and I certainly heard that opinion from some other people. I did hear from some ranchers who felt differently about it. Um, you know, there are there are plenty of ranchers who actually think that restoring bison is a good thing, too. So I, and just like with any group, you know, there's no one is a monolith. Um and and then there are some there are some people in the activist community who absolutely think we have something to lose by not restoring the animal as well. So there there's a huge range out there. There are a lot of people in Colorado who are working to increase the bison herd and also make the animal less susceptible to brucellosis, as you mentioned uh, earlier. You spoke with Jennifer Barfield of Colorado State University in your podcast. She has a project with bison on Colorado's eastern plains, and I want to play a clip from that conversation. We used set it up a bit. Yeah, yeah, Jen was great. We um, you know, the I think the core of her work has
has to do with the fact that the DNA of wild bison is extremely precious. When the population gets reduced to such small numbers, you know, you really need to keep that DNA going. And so what she's doing is all kinds of assisted reproductive technology stuff to save, um, to save uh, the bison genome for the future. Really, our goal is just to preserve the genetics, provide an insurance policy for these animals, get more animals out onto the landscape. Um, and, yeah, the idea that we're not trying to do this perpetually into the future where we're managing them with this assisted reproductive work. Um, I think people come out with a better understanding and, and feel a little more positive about it in the end. We spoke to Jennifer last year, and we received quite a bit of heated feedback about our interview on both sides of the issue. Uh, Are there any aspects of this debate that both sides agree on? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I I think even the people who are concerned about the extent of conservation, I think almost everyone I spoke to did agree that it's good that this animal did not go extinct. You know, I I think there's very few people out there who would be wishing for species extinction. I think it's just a matter of um, the difference between keeping small contained herds, which which really are not sort of the way bison naturally exist on the landscape, um, almost more as kind of like maybe something a little bit more than a zoo-like animal Mm -hmm. versus truly having a wild animal that is restored on the ecological scale. And it's in between those two points on the spectrum where the tension arises. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're speaking with radio reporter Amy Martin about her new podcast series called Threshold. Her first season focuses on the American bison. You also spoke with the Native American community, which has a unique relationship to bison. Here's Irvin Carls speaking about the Blackfeet Nations program. You know what it is? is to learn to respect them, to respect them, that they're a part of us, they're a part of our land, part of our history. Everybody here, you know, if you want to say you're a part of this this country here, then, then respect that, that they were a part of this country too. You know, and so they belong just like everybody else belongs. Will you expand on the Blackfeet Nation's relationship with bison? What exactly, um, why do they respect the animal so much? Well, you know, the Blackfeet and many other tribes um, in the United States have have been here for more than 12,000 years. And for all of that time, they have been a bison-oriented culture. Um, The Blackfeet actually moved with the bison um, you know, for all that time and learned, you know, their ways and, and even, you know, used fire in ways to, 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 to make the bison do what they wanted them to do. Their entire culture was built around this animal. And so when we killed off the bison or almost killed off the bison, I mean, it was a huge part of, of limiting and, and undermining their culture. And so Irvin is pretty amazing. He's working really hard to bring the bison back. They have a herd on the Blackfeet reservation. They're, they're expanding it. And, you know, his whole point is that if we want our children in the future to be Blackfeet, to be Native American, and to understand what it means to be from this place and to be from this culture, we have to have the buffalo. Um, The two are completely intertwined for him. This is just the first season of Threshold. You say that each season will look at another aspect of the natural world. How do you decide what to do next? Well, it's kind of a matter of winnowing out between hundreds of ideas. Um, I I have an amazing team that's helping me with the show, uh, and they all have ideas. I have ideas. And then we're actually soliciting ideas from listeners as well. Um, So, uh, you know, we're we're just really open. And I want to be doing this for the next 20 years. So hopefully we'll have, you know, time to cover at least a portion of those hundreds of ideas. (laughs) 
What was one of your most memorable experiences while making this podcast? Maybe something that took your breath away or a conversation that struck a chord with you? Um, you know, I, there were so many conversations. And I, I, I think that when I think about the animals themselves, um, I had many moments of just sitting and watching herds, hundreds and hundreds of bison and just watching them be bison and seeing how much they don't they don't really care what the human world is doing. They're just they're just these wandering vegetarians, you know. They do an amazing job of taking care of their young. I got to see lots of calves. Um, so that that was really memorable. And then I guess also I think just the diversity of opinions out there and how much, no matter who I was speaking with, I could empathize with their position. I didn't feel like anyone was coming from a from a place of ill will. There's just a lot of good-hearted folks out there, and sometimes they don't agree. Amy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Reporter Amy Martin produced the new podcast series, Threshold. It debuts this week. Her first season focuses on the American bison and the West. The fight over the future of health insurance in Colorado is on. A bill from Republican state lawmakers to repeal the state's health care exchange gets its first hearing next week. This as Republicans in Washington are moving ahead to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it later. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, that's left the exchange on shaky ground. No repeal! No repeal! No repeal! On a recent day, demonstrators dropped off thousands of petitions urging U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, a Republican, to protect their access to insurance. They say congressional plans to repeal the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, could put the coverage of 600,000 Coloradans at risk. Many have a story to tell. The system needs to work and people need access to care. Kelly Stallman told the crowd about her struggle to get reliable health care for two sons born with profound disabilities. Stallman says Congress needs to keep some provisions of the ACA, like ending lifetime limits on coverage. There was no way that we could have prepared and planned for what happened. And that's the difference in health care. It's not a marketplace where you go out to buy something. Something happens to you and you're caught completely by surprise. But the state's battle over Colorado's health care exchange has already begun. Republicans want to eliminate it. On the opening day of the session, Senate President Kevin Grantham said the repeal was long overdue. It is time for us to shed some of the dead weight of failed government policy. The bill's sponsor, Senator Jim Smallwood of Douglas County, says the ACA hasn't worked out as promised in Colorado. He says he's nervous for the citizens of almost a third of the state's counties, that's 19 counties, who now have just one insurer to choose from. Fewer insurance companies fewer choices of physicians within those insurance companies, and the premiums for those plans have really skyrocketed. Smallwood wonders if Colorado would be better off joining the federal exchange. That's instead of insurance customers continuing to be charged a fee to fund the state's exchange, Connect for Health. The way I look at it is I don't think that it could be any worse. The bill has little chance of passing in the Democratic House. This year, more than 169,000 Coloradans signed up for insurance on the individual market during open enrollment, which ends at the end of January. Kevin Patterson, the head of Colorado's exchange, says it's reaching out to neighboring states about the possibility of pooling resources. 
we're kind of used to working together as Western states on problems that are really unique to us. Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper supports the state's exchange. Since Obamacare, the state's uninsured rate has plummeted from 14 percent to half that. Congressional Republicans say they can come up with a better plan than Obamacare for cheaper, more consumer-driven health care. But the details of that plan haven't emerged yet. That causes heartburn for Hickenlooper, who told Colorado Matters residents are voicing concerns. As much as they were frustrated and hated the Affordable Care Act, they're very concerned about what Congress is going to make some kind of snap, shoot from the hip decision, and that they're going to end up in a worse place than they are now. Two other groups sweating the future are hospitals and insurers. Hospitals worry if Republicans repeal the ACA without an adequate replacement, they'll see huge financial losses, cuts, and layoffs. As many as eight rural Colorado hospitals could close their doors. Stephen Summer leads the Colorado Hospital Association. We see all that at risk, so our concern is making certain that patients have confidence that the hospital will be there, have confidence that they'll have coverage, and they'll get care at the right time. Charlie Sheffield is executive director of a Colorado trade association for insurers. Our concern raises daily in in not knowing what potentially could come next. He says they're in the process of submitting 2018 premium rates to the state for review. In the last couple of years, some insurers have left the exchange, and one big one, Colorado Health Op, even collapsed. Now, Sheffield says, insurers have no idea what might replace the ACA. Market disruption is costly, and the more unknowns that we face, it's going to represent higher costs to the consumers. Meantime, he says, everyone is trying to decipher the same signals from D.C., including some from the president via social media. We're all reading the same tweets. I'm John Daly, CPR News. What's the most embarrassing thing you did as a kid? Maybe you wrote a love letter to your high school crush. Hello, Leslie. How is your day today? Mine's quite well, I must admit. I do hope that yours is a good one. Because what you're about to read may or may not add an extra color to the rainbow (laughs) at day's end. Experiences from your youth may not be funny in the moment, but they can make great comedy later in life. And in the storytelling series Mortified, adults get up and share those experiences with total strangers. The first Mortified Colorado show took place last year, and it returns a week from Saturday with a doomed Valentine's Day show in Denver. David Blatt is the Colorado producer. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. I want to start with a bit more of the clip we just heard. Uh, This is from the first Mortified Colorado that we just spoke about. The event's founder, David Nadelberg, talked at it. He read a love letter that he wrote to a girl at his high school who he was pretty sure had no idea who he was. By now you may be wondering, just who is this? Why exactly is he writing me? How did he know my name? Is he emotionally and or mentally unstable? How long is this sentence going to be? David never sent that letter, but I understand this love note was the inspiration for Mortified, which he started back in 2002. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, so he uh, he happened upon this letter, and uh, like you mentioned, he never sent it. When he rediscovered it, he was just really struck at how embarrassing it was, first of all, but how funny it was, and uh, the voice that he used at the time, and how much he felt like he knew about the world. And uh, he poured and poured and poured over this letter. Uh, so when he rediscovered it, he reached out to some friends that he had to see if they might also have some artifacts from their childhood that they'd like to share. And it was supposed to be a one-off event and uh, ended up having such a phenomenal response that they kept it going. And now it's in 20 cities worldwide. Wow. Do you have a story like that that you tell? Uh, I've got a very different story that I shared. I actually uh, read quite a bit uh, with the San Francisco and Oakland chapters of Mortified. And uh, my story was all about uh, misadventures with uh, my girlfriends in middle and high school before coming out. Mm. Hmm. And what do you say when you uh, tell that story? Uh, I just recount a lot of the uh, the romantic mishaps uh, that led up to my my ultimate my ultimate confession. Uh, you used to live in San Francisco, and that's Correct. where you saw Mortified uh, for the first time. Yep. What do you remember about it? The first time I was at a yeah. show. Yeah. Uh, I remember. I remember. It very vividly, actually, uh, because I had not laughed that hard in so long. My face hurt from laughing. But as I was listening to all these readers, I was really struck by the resonance. There's this surprising resonance at these shows because people are sharing really vulnerable stuff. And... uh and there's also this piece, you know, most people feel at some point during their adolescence that they're very alone, that they're misunderstood. And there's this tragically beautiful thing that happens at these shows where you realize everybody gets that. Everybody's been there. And um, it's just a chance to laugh at those moments that were so challenging uh, way back when. Do you feel that by the time people tell these stories, they've gotten beyond the embarrassment or do they feel still feel it viscerally? Uh, I think I think sometimes there is a visceral experience when they're reliving things. But for the most part, there is that distance. And I think that's what allows people to get on stage in front of hundreds of strangers and share these stories. I'd like to play a bit more from that first November sure. event in Denver. Um, this is Erin. When I was 12, I had a unibrow and a nervous twitch. Needless to say, I got made fun of a lot. But I was determined to keep my self-esteem and find happiness in spite of mean boys and my unimpressive social life. To help me stay positive, I set my sights on two things. Teen sensation Devin Sawa. (laughs) And dolphins. Erin shared some old journal entries, and she went to a pretty vulnerable place. February 14th, 1996. I'm so unpopular at school. I'm like the plague or something. Everyone's in a bad mood with me. You know, it's hard to keep a good self-esteem like this. I'm a strong person, though. I'll live. I just wish I had someone to talk to. I think my only reason of self-esteem is my dream. I will live to work with dolphins. (laughs) How do you find these speakers? 
What typically happens is that people either have heard the Mortified podcast or they go to a Mortified show and they realize sort of uh, unbelievably as they're watching that they want to do this. So they'll go to the Mortified website, getmortified.com slash participate. And uh, there's a there's a page there where they can submit any old entries or schoolwork or whatever they've got. And then... Uh, it's a pretty, it's a really fun process and kind of a wild process. They then come to my house with a bag full of stuff they never expected to share with anybody. And we sit down and go through it and see what might work for a show. And what is the basis for the folks you pick? Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're really open to just about anything that folks have from, from way back when. So we're just looking for material that's got sort of a through line to it. So there's a story, uh, that, that kind of has a beginning, middle and an end. And that can be anything from, again, sort of a romantic misadventure, uh, maybe an unrequited love or a challenging uh, relationship with parents or um, a certain aspiration that people have really uh, strived for. So it's it really just depends on whatever people bring in. But I'd say we've been able to use about 75% of the folks that have requested a, a session. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with David Blatt. He produces the Colorado chapter of Mortified. This is an international storytelling event that focuses on sharing embarrassing childhood memories. You launched it in Denver of last November. Um, I'm wondering um, if you could uh, give me a brief preview of what to expect from the Doom. Valentine's show. One yeah. of the speakers is Johnny Five of of the Denver hip hop group, the Flowbots. What artifact from his childhood will he share? Yeah, we're really excited to have him on board. He uh, has always been a big lover of comic books, so he's actually going to share a unique love story of the Doomed Valentine show, and that is this sort of love affair that he had with comic books. Uh, he was an avid collector and also spent hours and hours and hours creating a comic book universe. Uh, uh, and actually, after all that time, never published a single issue. So we sort of go with Jamie through this, Jamie also known as Johnny Five, through this uh, this process of his uh, love affair with comics. There's a, a lot of unrequited love in these stories. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think that makes for a good comedy? Yeah, I think... Um, the unrequited love stories uh, often have these life or death stakes, particularly when they are from that time of life. Uh, so there's this great passion and and everything you know was so important at that time. And uh, I think those stakes make things really interesting. And of course, that's what a lot of people were journaling about, those heartbreaks. Today, there are nearly 20 chapters of Mortified around the world. There's a podcast and a Netflix documentary about it. Why did you decide to bring it to Denver? Yeah, uh... You know, it it ended up being a surprisingly big part of my experience in San Francisco. And when I knew I was uh, looking at relocating from San Francisco, uh, I was actually looking at cities where I could potentially start this chapter. And I grew up in Denver, and uh, it seemed like a lot of great things were pulling me back here. And I was thrilled at the prospect of being able to start it here and adding uh, kind of a richness to the Denver culture by bringing the show out. 
There are other storytelling events in the metro area, a few that come to mind, the Narrators, which Mm -hmm. has a different theme each time. There's Making the Mountain, a series in which artists talk about their creative process. Raconteur Denver invites audience members to share their stories around a certain theme at the end of the night. Civically-minded group Warm Cookies of the Revolution hosts The Reconstructionists. It features female storytellers and scrapbooking. Why is it important to have these events that share local stories and voices? Yeah, I think uh, I think people love to get to know each other more intimately, and these uh, events really allow a unique opportunity to do that with people. And um, I think, especially now in the world, you know, being able to share our stories is is of the utmost importance, and hearing about people's different experiences. When you lay all of these memories out there for people to laugh at, does it bring any resolution to some of the unsettling times people have in their youth? I think there is a major catharsis that that happens for a lot of folks when they do this. Um, And again, really just that chance to laugh at something that might have been tough way back when. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. David Blatt produces the Colorado chapter of the storytelling series Mortified. You can catch the Dooms Valentine's show next Saturday in Denver and in Boulder on Valentine's Day. Coming up, a TV comedy about three teachers from a Denver high school. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The television series Those Who Can't follows three teachers at a fictional Denver high school who haven't really grown up. You see, that's the problem. You all act like children. Now you're in charge of children. Hey, Tammy, did I ever tell you I value the opinion of a Chili's waitress more than the garbage that comes out of your face? Oh, hello. Oh, okay. hello to so you. I'm not afraid of you, Tammy. What? The show on True TV is the brainchild of Denver comedy trio The Growlicks. That's Adam Caton Holland, Andrew Orvidal, and Ben Roy. The show was recently picked up for a third season. Caton Holland spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner when the season two premiered last fall. Welcome back to the program, Adam. Thank you. It's nice to be back. There's a lot of dysfunction in this show. In, <laughs> in one episode, the teachers try to get a student they don't like expelled by planting drugs in his locker. You play a pretentious Spanish teacher. Ben Roy is the tattooed history teacher with anger issues. And Andrew Orvidal plays a PE instructor named Andy Fairbell, who's kind of a punching bag. He's just a buffoon, basically. A buffoon. We're like, how dumb can we make this character? Except that I understand you have a soft spot for that character. I love that character. He, because uh, he's the only, everyone is so self-motivated and just kind of bad. We all play our worst qualities, but he's the only one with a heart of gold. He's always trying to do the right thing. Okay. And did you need that to balance out the sort of negativity of the others? Uh, maybe. It just it developed organically. It was never a calculated thing. But yeah, I think you kind of just have to root for someone. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> the show would just be deplorable. How much of the writing evolves organically? And how much of it is, uh, I guess, more planned or kind of workshopped out? I mean, it all evolves really organically. We started writing this last January, and we wrote for four months before we started shooting. And it's just us in a room throwing ideas at the wall, um, and there's no bad ones, you know. But then we kind of 
take the craziest ideas, form them into coherent narratives, and off we go. And because you're on cable, it it means that you don't really get network messages like you have to be this, you have to do this, you have to sound like this. No, you know, True has, we're their first scripted show. They have oh. a couple coming down the pipeline, but we're their first scripted. So they've really trusted us to sort of set the tone. I mean, certainly they're a network and they reject a few things here and there because we're always pushing the boundaries. But uh, for the most part, they've left us alone. I'm dying to know what they rejected. <laughs> Maybe you can't say it. But what's amazing is the things they'll reject versus the things that get in. Like they'll reject something that we think is innocuous. And then we had an episode where Ben's character, Shoemaker, uh, gets a foreskin reattachment surgery <laughs> because he didn't want to have been. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, this is, you allow this? Okay, great. I'm not sure our network screeners are going to allow that. All right. Uh, so <laughs> there were no swear words. That's true. Your character, Lauren Payton, likes to think of himself as the cool guy on campus. So who wants a virgin, barely alcoholic margarita? Who's in? Everybody? Yes, that's what I'm talking about, guys. We're having fun and we're learning. I like that it's virgin and barely alcoholic. <laughs> barely alcoholic. That, that, that doesn't uh, sync up somehow. How does your character evolve in the new season? Or is the point never to evolve? No, I'm actually proud of all of our characters because we all sort of evolve in the new season. I, I describe my character as a pretentious bro. Uh, <laughs> but he's also very just fragile. And it's a facade of, of coolness. And that cracks several times over the course of the season, which is just fun to play. Um, Ben's character is on the verge of a nervous breakdown the entire season. Andrew stays the same. It's always old dumb Fairbell. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's fun to play those because, you know, I was just a cynical smartass season one. Season two, it's, it's the cracks are, are beginning to show. I think there are similarities between your show and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in terms of the somewhat unredeeming, non-redeeming qualities of mm-hmm. the characters. Um, the writers of Always Sunny have said that their characters never evolve. Right. And, and we, you've made a different choice. We have. And, and we often get the It's Always Sunny comparison. We love that because we love you that do. show. Okay. But we definitely want to evolve just because it's more fun for us to play that. And it's more fun for us to act in different ways. Um, I think, you know, the nicest compliment we got, somebody on Twitter, some random person just said, this is like a live action Simpsons. And I love that. And the Simpsons, you know, they don't evolve that much, but there's these moments of heart that really hits you because you don't see them often. If you have a little bit of heart, it goes a long, long way. We're talking with Denver comedian Adam Caden Holland about his true TV scripted uh, comedy, uh, Those Who Can't. One of your favorite episodes, apparently, from season one is K-Pop Goes the Weasel, in which the teachers find themselves trapped in the school at night, fighting for survival after a student leaves a threatening note. I am done trying to rationalize any of this, all right? What the hell is going on around here? Trevin's name was one of the names in the letter, so someone tell me right now that this is just a dream! I bet it's my dream. I have scary dreams like this all the time after I watch Charmed. Just pinch me, and I'll wake up. Oh, I said pinch. Ah, maybe it's your dream. Oof. What are you doing? Well, if it was my dream, that's what I would do. Every time I hear that, I laugh at the slap. I don't know why a slap is so funny. I that, guess that's why they call it slapstick. I but. guess so. I'm surprised at how slapstick we got. We love to fall down and hurt each other. Like, there were so many stunts this season. It was insane. You're, and you do your own stunts. We do, unless there's the big ones, in which case, like we threw Andrew's character out of the building, out the second story of the school this season. And so we, you have a stuntman for that. There was a stuntman, but it's not, not a dummy. No, no, no. Okay. It's, stunt people are incredible. They're like a whole different breed of Hollywood. I, I love them. They just don't even have time for us actors. They're too cool. What did you love about that episode in particular? 
That episode I love, we filmed that with Bobcat Goldthwait, and uh, it's a horror movie conceit. So it was just fun to make essentially an indie budget horror film. We did it this season as well, another one with Bobcat, where it's all filmed kind of via GoPro, found footage type horror movie. Those are just fun. It's fun to film in the dark and run around screaming. Speaking of guest appearances, um, you have a, a new castmate for season two. Sherry O'Terry yeah. plays Smoot High's new principal. Uh, some may remember O'Terry from Saturday Night Live and skits like the Spartan Cheerleaders or Nadine, uh, the Simma Down Now lady who worked at uh, various places, including a hospital. Sir, your sass is unappreciated here. <laughs> so before your other wrist becomes shattered... I suggest you fill out these forms and have a seat and then simmer, and simmer down. down. That's right? correct. Thank you. Not over there, over here. Where? Over here! What did you shout on your hearing drum in addition? I missed her so much when she left SNL, and I was really happy to see her on, on your lineup. Yeah, we couldn't believe she was willing to do it. She came in and auditioned, and she's like, I don't audition for anything, but I liked this show. And so she did, and she just ran away with the role. She was fantastic. She told me that all the sketches at SNL, she wrote everything for herself. Because she was like, I wasn't the best writer, but I'd just go into the room and, and do it. And they'd be like, okay, okay, let's do that sketch, which I thought was great. She's obviously... Um more of a veteran to television than you are. Is that intimidating? Or do you just find it exciting to be able to work with someone like that? We find it exciting. And honestly, it's kind of the reverse because we're so familiar with each other and we've been doing it for so long. People come in and they're (sighs) like, oh, these guys have a dynamic going. The ensemble, the three of them. Yeah, and and, you know, then the people we've added, like Rory Scovel and Kyle Kinane. And so she was actually intimidated and we're like, Sherry, do your thing. We brought you in because we love you. And then after that, it it was great. How has it been... As a comedian who's largely done stage work, you've done a lot of of funny writing as well um, to play to television cameras. And it's a multi-camera show, I'm guessing. Um, It's a single cam. Oh, it is a single cam. It's a single cam. All right. Um, But it's you're talking about the transition to acting? Yeah. How has that been? It's been hard. (laughs) But, you know, season two... I love, all of us are getting better at acting. And I watched season one, the first couple of episodes, I'm like, oof, what are we doing with our arms? But then uh, we figure it out. And I like to think of Seinfeld. You watch that show and the first couple of seasons, you're like, oh man, Jerry Seinfeld is not a very good actor. And then at some point he just <laughs> gets it and he's as good as everybody else on the show. I think we got it somewhere in season one. So season two is nice to hit the ground running and be more confident as actors. That's funny. Um, when I worked in television, it was always a question, what do you do with your arms? Yeah. It feels so unnatural. You just, uh, yeah. You're standing there with these dead weight arms. You find tricks like, I think I will have a pen that I'm twirling in the scene, or I'll be drinking a cup of coffee and stirring my coffee. It's just little tricks like that, which are so amateurish when I sound when I say them out loud, but it, it helps. So, how many minutes is an episode? Last season was 22. This season's 24. We Ooh, have two have more minutes. Two more minutes. Do you think there needs to be a joke like every 30 seconds? Is that how you how you think about writing jokes or spreading them out? We don't think about the timing of jokes. We more just think about getting the funniest joke out there. But we're we're nihilistic in the amount of jokes we have. We cram so many jokes into this show that we, we, at the expense of story half the time. There's three comics writing it. Jokes Jokes really get in there. But of course, jokes can be visual because it's television. So do you write kind of gag jokes or is that a different job? I'm surprised at how much we do that. I'm amazed at how slapstick and gag and heavy we've gotten, but I love it. So we write a lot of that stuff, yeah. You, I see. Signs yeah. in the background or something. Exactly. Like Those yeah. are for Easter eggs, we call them. Easter eggs. Easter eggs, little secret jokes for the viewer to find. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. 
Denver comedian Adam Caton Holland spoke with CPR's Ryan Warner last fall when the second season of his show, Those Who Can't, debuted on True TV. The show recently got renewed for a third season. That's our show for today. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. The show's producers are Anthony Cotton, Michelle P. Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Stephanie Wolf, and Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News.